If you turn with me to the passage in which today's teaching is based, it comes from 1 Samuel. I'm going to read excerpts between chapters 18 to 20, so you're going to have to follow along on the screen or with your Bibles. I'll walk us through it as we go, okay? 1 Samuel chapter 18, I'm going to begin with verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. Now I'm going to jump over to chapter 19, verse 4. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Now, jump over to, with me to chapter 20. I'm going to read verse 1. Then David fled from Naioth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to take my life? Never, Jonathan replied. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It's not so. Verse 17, and Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Verse 30, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me for he must die. Verse 41, after the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. And this is God's word. For those of you who are new or visiting, you know, we're walking through, <clears throat> as you've seen on the banner, if you're part of the prelude, um, looks like, you know, we're in the Macy's parade or something like that. Uh, the season, a season of change. Um, we could have called it a lot of things. I'm calling it a season of change because people can relate with change. Uh, but it's really about repentance, a season of growth, a season of maturity, a season of repentance. Because in the Christian life, change doesn't happen, not even one bit, not even one lasting moment without repentance. But I want you to understand my heart for a bit. There are a lot of people who come to the church, to the church, and they say, I want to grow. I want to I deepen my relationship with Jesus. And a lot of times, a lot of you who've come to Metro, you made a sh big shift in your life 
to switch churches, for that matter, to leave one context to go to another. And you say, I want to grow. I want to deepen my relationship with Jesus. But in this generation, at this stage in your life, maybe at this time in this pandemic era, our social pursuit, that long to, longing to connect with people, often drowns out. Once you start getting comfortable socially, it drowns out your desire to grow. So this relational pursuit becomes more important than that spiritual pursuit, that missional pursuit that drew you here in the first place, even in the church. And so the church becomes a social center when it really should be a missional center. Now, Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. That's what he says in the Bible. He says it in the New Testament. I will make you fishers of men. When you follow Jesus, when you become a Christian, you become fishers of men. Because he was talking to fishermen. A famous Baptist, a Baptist author once wrote that fishermen who are called to fish, who don't fish, fight. When fishermen who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. One of the founders of Westminster Theological Seminary, J. Gresham Machen says, when you get done fighting all the bad thinking and the poor theology and the bad doctrine out there, and there's nothing left to fight that's meaningful, there's great warning and caution that you will turn that on each other. Nothing could be further from the truth in that sense. The gospel, if you're honest, if you're really honest, the gospel, we always say, I want a Christ-centered relationship. I want a Christ-centered dating relationship. I want a Christ-centered friendship. But if you're honest, it's never central to our relationships. You know what's central? Your desire to connect with one another, your desire to have meaning in this relationship that you have. We really need to submit our relationships in a way we really need to submit our relationships the way we get into our friendships, uh, the way we pursue relationships. We need to submit all these things to Jesus because your closest friends will be the greatest shaping influences in your life. We are all, in many ways, a product of the closest friends that we have around us. Who you keep close and why you keep them close will be the great, very important, critical, vital guys. I'm older than most people watching. I know that. And so I can tell you this with great validation. You will not make it without your friends, without the closest shaping, gospel-shaping influences in your life. You can do church for a long time. You won't make it in the church, even in the church. You're just going to kind of meander in the church unless you get what I'm saying. So there's three things we're going to talk about. Uh, and I'm going to spend some time on this one today. We're going to talk about the criticality of friendships, the composition of our friendships, and the application of the gospel in our friendships. The criticality, the composition, and then the application of the gospel in our friendships. First, we're going to look at the criticality of our friendships. Saul brings David to his court, to his palace, after his great victory over Goliath. And uh, throughout chapters 18 to 20, which we just kind of saw excerpts of, uh, you know, really to, to save time, Saul, we see, groanly becomes more envious of David, of David's success, of his popularity. He just gets more and more jealous, more envious. And so, because he's the king, and David is kind of, of uh, transcending his own kingdom in a sense. And so he tries to kill David. Up to a dozen times he tries to kill David. 
There's evil in David's life everywhere. There's violence in David's life everywhere. But enveloping this danger, probably one of the most dangerous times in David's life is David's covenant relationship, his friendship with Jonathan, the son of the king, the son of Saul. That relationship sustained him. That relationship kept him going. That relationship actually saved him. That relationship kept him alive. And when I, when I say that, I don't, I don't want you to take it lightly because we say that to our friends. Without you, I'd be nowhere. David would have died without Jonathan. David would have died without Jonathan. So I don't mean sustaining in a sense that, you know, I couldn't live without you because you fulfill my perceived needs. I'm talking about life and death, life-shaping renewal. At the end of chapter 20, well, at the top of chapter 18, we see David and Jonathan coming together in the context of a covenant. And then at the end of chapter 20, we see them reaffirming it, reaffirming this covenant, renewing this current covenant. And so chapter 18 at the start, chapter 20 at the end, it's bracketed, it's bookended by a covenant that's established between these two wonderful men, in a sense, this beautiful friendship. And it's going to teach us then how true friendship works. Why do you need it? What's the criticality? Why do you need this type of friendship? Because there's lots of different types of friendships out there. Why do we need this type of friendship? Very unique. Only happens in the Christian life. In Genesis chapter 2, God says, let us make man in our image. The imago Dei. Making man in our image. Only the Christian faith, only the Christian gospel shows the, the dignity of a human life encompassed and, and, and basically enveloped in the image of God that we were created in. The design, the great design that God has made us in our image. The biblical God is what? It's Trinitarian. That means that at the heart of God, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They are three persons. The Spirit is not a thing. There are three persons in one. That means that at the heart of God from the beginning is what? It's community. Life-changing, life-shaping, life-devoting, selfless community. From the beginning, God by nature is a covenant relationship. God by nature is a covenant friendship, which means that before even the creation of the world, before the universe itself was created, there was friendship. And we are made in the likeness of that. We are made in that image. That means that although you're going to experience seas of trouble, seas of tragedy, tempests, storms, and trial, you will drown. You will drown. You will not be able to make it without true gospel friendships the way God designed. Now, I know what's going to happen here. All of you are saying, oh, I got one of those. Because this person, but what you're really saying is, because this person gives me what I want. This person lets me hear what I want to hear. This person supports me. That's not what I'm saying. In this generation, in this big city, where career and wealth, wealth building, is our motivation. Your job, your bank account is not negotiable a lot of times. But if your relationships are dissatisfying, they are, they are negotiable. 
Jobs, not negotiable. Career path, not negotiable. But relationships, totally negotiable. There are other priorities. That means a lot of people form relationships on their own terms. In our hedonistic Western civilization, focus on individualistic desires and pursuits, we form relationships to the degree that our expectations, our desires are fulfilled. But think about this. Your career and your wealth, it may be necessary to some degree, but it will never be sufficient to mature you, to shape you. Your wealth will not shape you. Your, your uh, career will not mature your character through the most trying times in your life. But the reality is, we don't nearly invest in being a good friend. We don't nearly invest in the best of our friends, the friendships that we need. And the big part of that reason, that's, that's a big part of the reason why we are anxious and depressed, lonely, and that sense of being stuck, that's, that's why. We don't invest in the friendships that we need and we pursue relationships based on just our expectations and desires being fulfilled. So the criticality of friendship is number one, it's part of our design. So that means that you will never experience the deep satisfaction of what it means to be in Christ. You will never experience the deep satisfaction of being created by God and becoming what you were designed to be unless you invest deeply in the types of friendships that you need. Now, what constitutes gospel friendship? Well, you, you see this all throughout Jonathan's relationship, Jonathan's friendship with David. I'm going to highlight quite a few things here. So you're going to have to walk with me here. Uh, we're going to have to highlight this. One, real friendships let, well, you can let your hair down. Chapters 18 verse, chapter 18, verses 1 to 3. Saul brings David into the court. He brings him into his palace. What that means is that they live, Saul, uh, Jonathan and David, they live in the same house. You know what that means? Jonathan, he saw all of David's greatness before anyone else. He was able to identify this man is chosen. This man is called before anybody else could see it. But he was also exposed to the qualities that no one even cares to write about. Probably, it probably characterized 90%, 95% of David's life. His quirks, idiosyncrasies, what kind of makes him you know, distinct and unique in some ways. That's, that's the nice way of saying it, right? Maybe his patterns, maybe even his sin patterns. His meals, studying, training, the, the way he dialogues with people, the way he argues with people, what he gets stuck on, his errands, his chores. Is he faithful? Is he, is he funny? Is he warm? Good friends, they see all the dimensions of your life. The most mundane Parts that characterize 90% of a person's life. The problem is, one, some of us tend to focus on that, wanting that, you know, doing life together, we call that. We tend to focus on that as the key to friendship. And it, it tends to become hedonistic. It tends to be, you know, hey, this is like, we just get to come as you are and just kind of be the way you are. I'm just going to accept you as you are. 
and it's a very lonely experience. You know, it's, we do that because we're lonely, and, and we don't see the, the, the horizon with, which, with respect to friendship that God desires for us, right, on one hand. On the other hand, we're oftentimes turned off by what we see when we do life together. And so what happens is because of our mundane experiences, and you get to see and learn a lot about a person through these kind of day-to-day life experiences, you become very judgmental towards that person. And so, you know, on one hand, there's like this um, doing life together fulfills a desire. You're constantly hanging out together. That fulfills a desire because it satisfies, at least temporarily, that loneliness it's a reflection of your loneliness. On the other hand, what it does is you're turned off by the person because you see so much of that person and become very judgmental. Either way, what do you see? Um, we want relationships on our own terms. It's a barrier to maturity. Because this is really just merely the beginning, the beginning of a gospel relationship. That you're scratching the surface of a gospel relationship. And it begs the question as to how mature your relationships really are. Because if your relationships are just a culmination of just doing life together like this, that's one dimension of a thousand dimensions. It begs the question as to how mature your relationships really are and what what or who they actually serve. Real friends can let their hair down. It's an entry into deep friendship. Two, there's common values. This one's big. Chapter 18, verse 1. You see it's right at the top. Jonathan became one in spirit with David. What does that mean? Good friends, good friendships, gospel relationships, they develop a oneness, a like-mindedness. Verse 1, Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. We see that repeated. In other words, friendship begins with like values, not like interests, not like humor, like values that bring about union. You become like one. Through that person, you actually realize more about yourself and more about what you value, what you value, more about what you should value, more about what you need to value. You say, wow, actually me too. Wow, that's me. Wow, you're able to articulate something I could never articulate. I didn't even think about that, but I share that. When you share the same values, you're moved by the same things. It's a spiritual thing. It's not a, it's not a, a, a terranian thing. It's a subterranean thing. Today, friendships are more about indulging each other's common interests, each other's personalities. Uh, we, we, we're so drawn to the externals, and we focus so much on being the funny guy or being the cute guy or being the, you know, the guy who acts this way or the nice guy when we really are supposed to be focused on being new, the new guy, the guy who is demonstrating newness. We're so much about indulging each other's common interests and personalities. It leads to division. That's the downside. It leads to division. It leads to gossip because as you learn more about a person and their values, you start to either become very attracted to them or repulsed by them. But chapter 20, verse 42, Jonathan says what? Go in peace for we have sworn Friendship in the name of the Lord. It's not about connection. These days we'll hear so much, even in the church, about, but I feel a good connection. Nowhere here is there. That connection, right, it's the closest thing that you can have to a spiritual experience in relationship without a spiritual experience in relationship. 
It's about a common trust, a common passion, a common mission, a common observation of of a dedication towards transformation. And, And this it happens through a common suffering, a common burden, a common heart that's developed through common experiences, shared experiences. Today we say, well, that's really clicky. It can be. It can be. That's the downside of that in our sinfulness. But I'm going to submit to you, you can't have a lasting friendship without it. You can't. Thirdly, uh, verse 3, chapter 18, verse 3, Jonathan makes a covenant with David. In other words, the relationship begins and ends with a life-changing and life-shaping promise, a life-binding promise. Today, we build friendships on expectations, give and take, perceived needs, and we try to minimize our obligation to the person. We don't want to obligate people to us, and at the same time, we have unstated obligatory expectations of a person, which is what drives bitterness and anger because we feel like, oh, I guess that person doesn't feel that way too. And we have these, like, we, we minimize our own obligations. So we try to, it's, it's our desire to just preserve ourselves. It's our pride. We, we essentially want to preserve ourselves. We want to minimize obligation, minimize responsibility so we don't take responsibility. We don't obligate ourselves. And so what we're doing is if both people are doing that, you're just using each other to fulfill your desires without a lot of strings attached. Or we try to act like there aren't a lot of strings attached. We try to act cool, play it cool, and that's so immature. You know why? Look at our relationship with God. It's on a foundation of what? Promise. Covenant. When God chose to come into our lives, and because there's no way we, we can work our way up to God, God, the high king, comes down and connects and dwells among us. That's the mundane, right? So there's no cost-benefit analysis that he did, that he, he kind of an- analyzed and said, you know what, this is worth it for me. Because it wasn't worth it. There's no cost-benefit analysis with God when he chose to bind himself to his people. There's no, he, there's no give and take. He just gives and gives and gives and gives. And it's overflowing. The psalmist says there's abundant grace. There's overflowing grace over it. And they call it grace. It's all by sheer grace. And, and God is never thinking, what do I get out of this? In a covenant relationship, you are obligating yourself. It has nothing to do with what you receive. You are obligating yourself because you love that person. That's real love. That's genuine love. Friends, none of us have that. Let's be honest. None of us are like that. It is a supernatural thing to be able to obligate yourself. The closest thing you probably have that in that is, is marriage and having children. That's probably the closest thing you've got to that. And even that, there's a, a very selfish component to that because it fulfills you. What's marriage? Marriage, what is marriage but a life-finding, life-shaping uh, promise? That's what marriage is. A covenant that goes beyond romance. It goes beyond feelings. It goes beyond sex for richer or poorer, for better or for, for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Today, we're focused so much on self-protection, self-preservation, self-fulfillment, but a covenant relationship is focused on the relationship itself. Whether or not your own needs are met. Look at Jonathan. The moment, I mean, he is a prince who is about to become king. He's got the whole world in his hands. We would, 
we would, dis- I mean, why do we come to the big city? Because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to seize it, right? He's got it. It's his. The moment he commits himself to David, he says, I'm going to lose my throne. I'm going to lose my kingship. Everything my father worked for, everything I've been trained for, my life, it could be over. It does end. And not once do you see in these texts, you owe me. He's a true friend. Chapter 20, verse 4, whatever you want me to do for you, I'll do it. This is the son of the king talking to a shepherd boy because he sees, he trusts God's word. And that leads us to the fourth thing, gospel friendships, they see each other's potential. They see each other's potential. Jonathan took off the robe that he was wearing. He gave it to David along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, his belt. You know what that means? The robe represents the kingdom. What he's saying is I'm giving up. I'm giving up my rights. I'm giving up the throne for you. Jonathan's a prince. Jonathan's a king. To give up your sword is to give up your power, to give up your authority, to give up your security, to give up your robe, your tunic, your belt. He's saying I, it's like I'm naked. I'm defenseless. I'm vulnerable. Today, we're so proud and we're so easily offended. We have such thin skin. I have rights. How dare you say this to me? Who are you to say this? But here, Jonathan says, I'm going to sacrifice my rights. I'm going to sacrifice my authority. I'm going to give you authority. Humility. Why does he do it? I mean, ever think about that? Why does he do it? It's because he saw that the Lord was with David. He says, I see your potential. You have great potential. I'm going to surrender my potential for your potential. This robe, this tunic, this sword, this bow, this belt, it's meant to be yours because you are meant to be king. To know that it's in his grasp, it's meant for him. He was born into this. And he's saying, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. That could be the end of my life. God has chosen you. He trusted that. Even if it would come at the cost of his life, and it does. He said, I'm going to submit to the Lord. And I'm going to submit to this relationship. I want you to take an inventory of your friendships. How many, how many of them have been formed with you just absolutely knowing, yes, here the Lord is present. He has entrusted me. I trust him, and I desire to be a steward over this gift. No, we, we don't do that. We, we're impatient. We're selfish. We're judgmental. We're works-driven. When you're really honest, that's what we are. You know why there's division in the church? Because if you really trust God, then you, then you would trust, entrust yourself to those whom God has called you to. You would submit to them out of reverence for Christ. We're not about to hear that. You know why? Because we see their shortcomings. So they can't, they're not perfect. Newsflash, you're not perfect. We forget the gospel. We start to judge one another based on our works, you know. Um, we tend to say, well, I'm not like that. I'm, in other words, what you're saying is I'm superior. That, that type of superiority, inferiority thing doesn't make for good friendships. Not in the secular world, not out there, and certainly not in the church. It's not built for that. We're not built for that. Are you more saved than your friend? And I quote one of my friends. He'll say, you're not more saved 
So shut up because you're a punk. That's what he says. We forget the great potential of the Lord working through our shortcomings because if we did remember, if we focused on that, our friendships would help shape our strengths, our gifts, lead us out of the things that are killing us, and you would celebrate them. You would affirm them because of that. You would advance them even if it comes at your own cost. Jonathan, he knows he's going to lose his rights. He may even lose his kingdom. He may lose his life. If David thrives, and yet he says, I want you to take my sword, I'm giving up my defense. I want you to take my robe, I'm giving up my authority, my royalty, it's yours. I will sacrifice everything so that you can advance. And if you gain, I gain. That is oneness. That is union. That's covenantal. You can see a gospel friendship. You can see a true gospel friendship when you see both people growing in humility, growing in sacrifice, growing in others' focusedness outside of their own selfishness because of their love for Jesus. It begins with a very simple confession, but impossible without the Holy Spirit working in us. It begins with an admission that we look for other things in our friendships. When you're able to say that, that humility is already starting. That humility is already beginning. Five, there's loyalty. I mean, you've got to have loyalty in a friendship, right? But here's the biblical basis for that. Uh, chapter 19, verse 4 and 5, Jonathan confronts his own father, the king. So that's a double whammy. Not only is he the king, he can have you killed if he doesn't like what you're saying, but he conf- his king is his father. And father, the family unit, was the most important thing in those ancient times. So there's a double whammy there. He confronts his father, and he says, you're wrong. David is innocent. Do you realize what he's saying here? He's putting his neck on the line. And because of this, he loses the trust of his own father. In chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, we read it. He gets the wrath of his father. The anger that the, that the father had that was meant for David is now turned. It's transferred to Jonathan. And in every friendship, that means that there's loyalty. Because your life has been so shaped. Your life has been th- this missional uh, partnership has so much shaped you so deeply. But it's not just a blind loyalty. There's an honesty. There's love, but there's also truth. That's the sixth thing. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. It's a very interesting thing here. Right, right as we enter into chapter 20, David says, your father's trying to kill me. Think about that. He's accusing Jonathan of, you know, Jonathan's oblivious. He says, your father's trying to kill me. And Jonathan says, no way. Why would he do that? And why wouldn't he tell me about this? David says, look, man, I'm one step away from death. Every day of my life, I live in this court. I am one step away. If I don't stay on my toes, do you know how uncomfortable it is? Do you know how I'm constantly anxious? I'm living in this. I'm one step away from death. You know what's going on? They're arguing. There's a debate, intense. Loyalty is not blind. It comes from validating truth, hearing the hard truth. Today, we tend to just stand by our friends as as the foundation. We tend to just stand by, support our friends. But if you really love your friends, you know what support looks like? You would think about what they're saying. You would try to validate what they're saying. And hear the hard truths. David is talking about Jonathan's father. That means that there is a climate set up there where they can be honest about their realities. 
They can be honest about their realities. Say the hard things, the hardest things. If you have a friend that's not saying the hardest things to you, today, we desire the thrill of relationship and avoid the responsibility of relationship. That's not gospel. That's not any gospel I know. That's not any gospel in this. Jesus, what thrill did he have? It was all him just choosing to obligate himself. And he took on all the responsibility. And he said some hard stuff. So sometimes that means there are accusations. Sometimes you're going to argue. But I want you to notice this. Does it really affect their relationship? No. Because you saw all the dimensions. You share the same values. You trust in the promise. You see the potential. And that builds a bedrock of knowledge. You gotta look at the whole body of work. You can't just look at the, that one slice of the pie. It could be a big slice that doesn't taste good. You, you gotta look at the whole thing. I trust it. Yes, you may argue, but seven, a gospel friendship is not defined by those arguments. It's defined by how you grew and are sharpened in those arguments. And there it is. We started out this message talking about growth, the value, the importance of growth. I come to this church to grow. And how do we reconcile that with this pursuit of relationships that oftentimes go awry? There's the growth. Growth sharpening through challenging one another. Christ is in the relationship. Christ is above the relationship. Christ is under the relationship. Christ is through the relationship. Christ is beside the relationship. And so your confidence in Christ grows even more exponentially as you grow in relationship together. You're going to see each other's sins. You're going to disagree, but you're still shaped by the truths and you grow and you trust in Jesus. So you're going to continue to give your friends that warrant. You might not always like it. You might even like the way they say it. You might not even like some things about them. And maybe they're even hypocritical. I mean, but does that that mean you should dismiss it? We're going to see each other's sins. We're going to disagree. But to be shaped by the truth and to grow grow your trust in Christ because of this gift of friendship that's been given to you, You're going to give your friends a right and a warrant for our arrest because you know, you trust, they want you to thrive. You know why we don't mature, friends? Here's a hint. It's not them, it's you. We avoid those hard conversations. We avoid hearing that stuff that's killing us, that we don't see. I mean, you know what cancer is? You know what cancer is so deadly? Because you don't see it. Sometimes you don't detect it until it's too late. And I don't want to be, friends, I mean, my mother has, has had many cancer scares, so I'm not trying to denigrate the, the torture and the anguish that comes with 
finding something out that evidently is killing you. You know why? It's because it's so subterranean, it's so deep, it's so insidious until it's too late. We only move towards the things that in the moment tickle our ears, refresh us, those refreshing conversations. You need that too. But we also need those great tactical surgeons in our lives. Hebrews 3 says, the author says, encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You know what that means? The things that are most wrong with you the things that you're, are the things that you're least likely to see in yourself because sin is deceitful and your heart can You know how deceitful sin is? Sometimes sin is so deceitful, you think that what you're doing is you're deceiving somebody else by convincing them of something and they're not convinced. That's a good friend because they're not convinced because they've shared all the dimensions. They know your values. They recognize what you're drawn to over patterns and patterns. The heart can go bad, so you need friends. Oh, you need courageous friends, bold friends. You need humble friends. You need courageously humble and humbly courageous friends who can cut through your pride, the pride that would otherwise destroy you. Jonathan and David, they're debating about Jonathan's father, and yet... Jonathan becomes open. You know what you're doing? He loves his father. So he's loyal, but he's going to validate. He loves David, so he's going to be loyal, but he's going to validate. And so what he does is he validates the truth. He doesn't just dismiss one side just because it hurts him, just because it upsets him. He validates it. And you know what it does? It actually increases their friendship. Eight, friends are active, and we want to take some time on this. Every church should take some time on this one. Friends are actively present. Chapter 20, verse 4, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. Sounds like uh, that song from Robin Hood. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. Mere acts, mere actions without promise are contractual relationships. They're selfish relationships, give-and-take relationship. But Jonathan, knowing the cost, he says, I'll do it. I'm there. It saved David's life, guys. This oneness leads to a sacrificial presence. David would never have become David without Jonathan. Lastly, there is a deep affection for one another. I don't want to discount that. It's so important. There's a deep affection for one another. A lot of times we jump for, you got to see how I frame this, we jump for the first thing, which is doing life together, and we jump for the last thing, which is the deep affection. But in reality, you need everything in between that makes the two at the end meaningful. There's a deep affection for one another. Chapter 20, verse 41 if you look at David and Jonathan, their friendship could be summarized right there. They're men, they're warriors, they're politicians, they're priests in a sense, they're, they're prophetic in a sense, masculine men, but they're weeping and they're embracing and they're kissing 
And that's how the Bible presents biblical masculinity. These incredible threads woven together into a fabric of gospel friendship. It takes a certain kind of person to be able to do that. It takes a certain kind of humility. That's what it requires. Now, if you're thinking, well, it just looks like I need to work on this and I need to work on that, you're not getting it. Today we focus on, you know, a lot of times, where can I find that kind of friend? Because I'm happy here, so I'm going to go there. I'm unhappy with this relationship, so I'm going to find it here. The point is, we're all called to be this. We're all called to be this. We're not necessarily called to look for this. We need it, but we're called to be it. On your own, it's impossible to be it. How can you become it? Then you need to find it. And you need to find it first and truly and ultimately in the ultimate friend that we have. You know, David was saved. His life was preserved to become all that he was meant to be because of his friendship with Jonathan. Jonathan could have saved himself by betraying David or he could have saved himself by betraying Saul, but he was actually faithful to both. So he takes on Saul's anger. He takes on Saul's distrust, which was intended for David, but then eventually he dies for Saul. He dies for his family. And so Jonathan symbolically submits his clothing, his royalty, his sword, his power, his authority, his security, and his life so that David would become king. How do you apply that in your life? For David to be saved, Jonathan had to die. For David to be king, Jonathan had to be dethroned. For David to get the robe, Jonathan had to take off his robe. For David to reach his potential then, Jonathan had to submit his potential. Wow, that's an amazing... Jonathan, it was an amazing friend. But we have an even better friend. Jesus Christ came to the world as the ultimate friend. He's the true king. He came down and submitted his royalty, submitted his throne, submitted his kingdom, and, and he did that for his friends. He did that for us. And, and because of his love for his father, because of, his, because of the king, the high king of heaven, and because of his friends. And so on the cross, he was stripped naked, and he was defenseless. He's vulnerable, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's saying, this is the ultimate defenselessness. This is the ultimate vulnerability. Because of his love for David, Jonathan got an unjust anger. The unjust anger of the king, the unjust anger of the father, but on the cross, because of Jesus' love for his friends, because of Jesus' love for his people, he received the full, unmitigated, unmediated wrath and anger of a holy God. Jesus and his love is an ultimate picture of the covenant friendship that we all seek and it's offered to us freely by his grace. Through the cross, Jesus stayed loyal to both his father and his friends to the end. A loyal God's eternal love. A loyal God's eternal love to his father and to his father's justice. 
I mean, if David was changed, if David was saved, if David was brought to his greatest potential, if David became king through his friendship with Jonathan, how much more will you be changed and saved and brought to your ultimate potential, brought to your kingship, your kingliness, if you were able to trust in and embrace and desire Jesus Christ, the greatest friend? Look at the friendship of Jesus, letting your hair down, the mundane, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word made his dwelling among us. Look at Jesus. Promise to the end of the age. Potential, you will do even greater things than me. Loyalty, he says, God says, either you're going to sacrifice or your friends are going to sacrifice. Either you're going to give up your life or they're going to have to give up their lives. What does Jesus say? I'll sacrifice. I will take hell. And so either he gets separated from God or we get separated from God. And then on all the cross he says, my God, my God, why have you separated yourself from me? Why have you forsaken me? Honesty. David says, I'm one step away from death. I'm overwhelmed by this. Jesus Christ at Gethsemane, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. I'm one step away because of our sins. Sharpening. Look at Jesus and his, con- his conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, uh, a wealthy, educated, religious person, a good person. Jesus says, you better be born again. You better start all over, he says. That's hard. Jesus to Peter, get behind me, Satan, he says. You better deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. He says, you will betray me three times. Hard stuff, hard stuff. One of you are going to betray me. Hard stuff. Presence, presence. Uh, He also said, by the way, he says to his disciples, you have no faith. (laughs) That's what he says. Presence, I am with you always. Affection, on the night he was betrayed, he washes his disciples' feet. He feeds them. He institutes the covenant with them through a promise He feeds them. Even Judas is still invited to that. Jesus sacrifices his greatness so that you could become great. If you see the covenant love of Jesus, it will transform you. It can transform you into being a real friend. The Holy Spirit will weave those threads of gospel relationship into your friendship into your friendships, into an amazing fabric of gospel friendship. Look to the befriending grace of Jesus, the ultimate friend. The gospel will turn turn you into the kind of friend that you always wanted in your life. Instead of looking inward and saying, I need this, I want this, I'm going to look for this. The gospel actually makes you become that. And imagine a, a community of people that become that. What that will do to transform that community and what that will do to transform community. We will make friends of our communities around us. It will change cities. You have enough of those, it will change societies. The gospel will transform you into the kind of friend that you always wanted and it will move you to act and serve and sacrifice and love in a way that will shape other people around you. You want that? I mean, we all want that kind of friend. We all need that kind of friend. The gospel says you can become that kind of friend. You have the power to be that kind of friend. Let's pray.